Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Design Unmuted. Uh, my guest today is Naya Lewis-Williams and please uh, introduce yourself, Naya. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Maya Lewis, as you said, and I'm an independent curator. I'm currently the guest curator at Museum of Anthropology. Um, I'm an MFA student at OCAD and a research assistant at the Center for the Study of Canadian and Black Afro-Diaspora. Awesome. Thank you. And for people who don't necessarily understand what an art curator is or does, could you take some time to explain what that entails? Sure. I think the easiest kind of way to speak about curation is to think about programming or to think about using art as a tool to build community relations or to build relationships. So um, we're kind of the intermediary between the physical works that are created and the way that the public gets to consume them. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think through um, exhibition creation, through research, through exhibition display, um, through any of the kind of academic mm-hmm. or theoretical writing around how we are crafting kind of these new worlds where the where these art pieces get to live in. So anytime you kind of like walk into an art space, mm-hmm. there's probably a curator there that has decided, you know, how the lighting looks and how what colors are on the wall and what size text mm-hmm. and um, what artworks are being chosen and how they're being um, displayed. And so really the kind of the silent hand, I would say, of how public of how about mm-hmm. of how art is being consumed publicly right that's that's amazing it's these are the things that um i think when you're consuming art most people have the tendency to uh, con- uh i guess maybe subconsciously give credit to the artist in terms of like how everything comes together mm-hmm. um but it's it's good to know that there is like another person who makes it come to life in the way that it does yeah. And I want, yeah. And I and like, maybe, can you talk about maybe some of like the challenges like that come with that perhaps? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think about my role as like kind of ever evolving in the sense that it's really about creating relationships and trust with the artists um, and what kind of responsibilities mm-hmm. the curators have as like caregivers, as like temporary caregivers of the work. Like we are only able to, do what we do if we have the trust of the artists who are handing over their hard, mm-hmm. you know, laborious, emotional kind of brainchild to us and trusting us to either display it in conversation with other artists or to bring it, you know, to bring a storytelling or narrative to life that surrounds their work, you know, possibly mm-hmm. maybe that they would not have been able to dream up themselves because artists are thinking about the materiality and the creativity of producing this one piece and curators are thinking about how does it tie into the larger picture um and so i feel like the challenge is always balancing the needs and the wants and making sure you're respecting the artist's wishes in terms of how the work is being displayed and engaged Mm 
um, but also having kind of the vision and the mm -hmm. foresight to see how it can be the smaller puzzle piece into this larger, you know, this larger kind of landscape that you're creating. So I think that balance is always very tricky yeah. um, because you have to humanize the work. You have to make sure that you're always remembering that somebody created this and it, you know, it means something to, to them. And it, sh you know, we want to make sure every piece gets its shine. Right. Absolutely. And um, I think this is a good segue. Um, I came to the opening night of Sankofa and I think it was one of the best exhibitions I've ever seen. And I want to commend you and the team that worked on that. Oh, thank you. Um, can you um, talk a little bit more about kind of like how that project came to like the, the, like the first seeds of that project and um, you have artists from all over the world and you just talked about like making sure that all the different pieces come in conversations with each other and building trust with the artist. Um, I'm wondering, especially in the middle of the pandemic, how you were able to navigate all of that and bring able this exhibition. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much. I am I am feeling very um, just like happy about the response specifically from black and indigenous community to this exhibit because mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that the invitation was very clear. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we said it, we, we knew it was meant for black people. When we said our, we knew, we, you know, and so the language and then the kind of coding in the exhibit was meant to be very clear who it was for. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the response has been super overwhelming. And um, anyway, thank you for saying that. Um, so myself and um, Titilope Salami, who is a an amazing curator from Nigeria, mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Nuno Porto, who is the senior curator of the African collections uh, at the Museum mm -hmm. of Anthropology. We created this kind of super team um, in 2018. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that, of course, people are only seeing the end result, but it's almost two, almost three years of research and development before we even get to design an installation um, of really right. handpicking each artist of coming to the table. I think we had almost 50 artists, maybe, maybe more to scale it down to, to 13 mm -hmm. um, to figure out, you know, what the, what we were really trying to say, what pe the meaning of each piece and how they fit in conversation with each other. Um, and so the idea began as an opportunity to reimagine how the African collections uh, would be displayed. Mm -hmm. I guess the, the grounding question is why are these collections still important, right? Mm -hmm. um, how are black people coming into the gallery and relating to the African collections? Are they seeing themselves? Are they, is it, and you know, holding anything meaningful anymore when it's been in an institution for that long, when it's been behind glass, when it's not living, when it's not breathing, when it's not, you know, engaging with African communities mm -hmm. globally, um, you know, they start to kind of lose their meaning. Um, and they're being cared for, mm -hmm. you know, with all love and respect to Dr. Noporto, of course, but a white Portuguese man as a senior curator of African collections, there's never been an African person, an African curator mm -hmm. or art practitioner um, to engage with this collection ever. Right. So there was a lot of firsts walking into the room, into the space when we started this project. And it started as something very different with a completely different name. Okay. And um we were thinking about how we are this idea of like the same 
this idea of this the the pot of African culture and heritage that we're all pouring into and also um, receiving from how we might build bridges of connection so that when you walk in to see the African collections, you don't Mm -hmm. feel uh, eroticized or, you know, you don't feel voyeurism. Mm -hmm. You don't feel, you know, which, which I think we do feel we like, we're looking at it and this is not the family or communities that we know of ourselves. This is not how we know ourselves. So Mm -hmm. we're trying to think about how to build those bridges. And ultimately we ended up having to completely scrap (laughs) what, what the museum had to offer. And uh, we were really, I think at least I'm very grateful that they handed it over. I was very willing to hand it over to these two black women. Um, and we were able to kind of build mm. something that was, you can tell, I think is very much so in our voice and not in the institution's voice. Um, right. Sorry. So that was a long answer, but it started as something very different. And three years later, um, I think we did, we did what needed to be done for sure. Yeah. That, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I think it really uh, did come through, um, I'm curious to know, you said um, it had a different name to begin with. Yeah, it was called um, Under, Under Many Moons was the first title, was the first iteration okay. of the exhibit. Um, and uh-huh. there was a publication. And again, the museum director, white British art historian, um, engaging African art. Again, a story that we've heard many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, to his credit, um, all of them were willing <laughs> to step aside and say, let's do something different. Right. Um, and we happened to be in alignment because then of course, George Floyd happened and the calls for accountability happened. And luckily, thank goodness for us, we were already, we were already on that journey of how to center black voices. So it worked out. Right. Uh, absolutely amazing. And uh, for people who don't know what Sankofa means, can you take some time to explain maybe even how the transition happened between the initial uh, name of the exhibition to how it ended up being uh, Sankofa? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for for very crudely or very basic, um, Sankofa means to go back and fetch it or go back and get it. It is a term um, that is part of a longer proverb from the Akan people, which would be modern day Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire, um, so that western coast um, of mm-hmm. Africa. And it belongs to a larger kind of proverb set or, or almost alphabet, iconography alphabet uh, called the Adinkra symbols, um, mm-hmm. which have rich meanings that kind of translate um, to metaphors or philosophies for returning to the past in order to guide your way forward. So Sankofa's symbol is this bird where the front of his body is facing forward, but the neck is facing backwards. Um, so mm-hmm. it's this idea of looking back in order to look forward. Right. Um, and I, it's a, it's an important term for me. My dad, um, who is Trinidadian and Ghanaian, mm-hmm is um someone we we grew up we grew up with adinkra we grew up with jinyame and all of these symbols being very very important um Mm -hmm. i have uh, two adinkra uh, tattoos um it was very it was like the types types of philosophies that we were we were raised around and um he co-founded one of the first canadian african dance and drum ensembles uh, and the name of that ensemble was sankofa um Mm -hmm. And so I think it's always a word that's on the tip of my tongue. And when we were sitting there trying to think about 
Why is this important? Why are we bridging this? How are we bridging this? How are we looking back to look forward? How are we looking back? So we just kept like, we literally kept ruminating on that idea of this, like these rings, these links of connection. And we're like, okay, but it's not a link. Like a link feels like it's chained, but it's not a link. It's something more than that. It's rooted, it's grounded, but it's also making room for new. And I was like, oh, Sankofa, <laughs> like that, what we're yeah. saying is this is, is the, this is the philosophy that we're saying. We're saying Sankofa. And right. that is, you know, how do we come to indigenous methodology without mm-hmm. having to use colonizer language? And I think right. it's very, it was very um, challenging for MOA with the first time, one of the first times that they've had a title that was not in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a pretty big deal, I think, that we were, we landed on this name because not only are we saying we're centering black voices, not only are we centering black thought, but now African methodology and philosophy and language, right. uh, you know what I mean? So it was yeah. very clear that we went from under many moons, which is like how, how white folks look at us to Sankofa, which is how we see ourselves, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And like with centering African methodologies, you mentioned how working with um, Moa and diff- kind of like, art institutions is not inherently in alignment with kind of like those values. And I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on some of the things that you had to actually fundamentally change to be able to uh, to bring forward, uh, to center um, these African identities and, and values and how institutions are not supportive of, of that unless you have people who are like, like you mentioned, who were willing to kind of let you lead the the whole project. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about an ethnographic and anthropological site, <laughs> a site of harm, a colonial site, a museum that has not engaged black curators for the most, most of its lifespan, mm-hmm. um, who has just hired their first ever um, indigenous curator. Wow. Yeah, Tamara, Dr. Tamara, who who is brilliant. Um, but they have been seventy two years <laughs> open, right? The Museum of Anthropology on these lands. Right. Be- besides the the kind of colonial histories that the obviously the the actual museum is rooted in. So so yeah. in terms of like physical changes, really j- most of it was managing my body, my presence, my black skin in those spaces having to navigate how the predominantly white team receives me and my ideas. How do Mm -hmm. I center and say to them um, that black and African artistic expression is not just embodied, that it's also rigorous and academic. Right. It's not right. And then here's the theory and here's the writers, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's this, we're also battling the biases in every department, right? Design says he, we should go with, you know, bright greens and oranges. And, and then I say maybe muted greens and maybe muted oranges and this font. Mm. Because because when I think about it, you know, I, I think literary, you know, and when mm. they think about it, they think Sahara. Mm. And so like they're, you know, and so these are the kind of back and forth and, conversations that were really challenging to have simple thing yeah. like everything needs to be edited because every text that went in you lowercase b the in black oh what lowercase b is a color 
uppercase B is a people, everything has to be re redone. And this is not to call them out, in, you know, and I'm sure that a lot of organizations are going to have to go through this switch, but it would take a Black person mm -hmm. working right. there to say, hey, actually, this is wrong because it had already gone through, you know, we always have these conversations. How many people read right. this text before it got to the public? How could this happen? Because there aren't Black people in these spaces looking, right, and being right. diligent about these little things. You know, even mm -hmm. down to, like, you know, the bureaucracy of these spaces, you know, how artists are being paid, how their pay fee is structured, what they're worth, advocating for how much they should be paid. Like, these right. types of conversations that you... um you have to realize it's not just about bringing them into the space. You also have to make sure the space is as harm reduced as possible Absolutely. to even be safe to hold their works and to hold these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. um, thinking through tokenism, like, do we just put the art up and walk away? No, we have to have a gathering. We have to have an opening. Who is the DJ we're yeah. hiring? Who, you know? Yeah. So these are all the, I mean, I could go on and on about the logistics of how how we are in constant conflict and, and in constant, yeah. you know, contesting the way. But but the truth is that the spaces were built by us and sustained by us, but not for us. Mm -hmm. And there's not an aspect where the fragmentation or um, the deep centering, the the strategic erasure of blackness isn't felt throughout the throughout the institution there's not one mm -hmm. level yeah. <laughs> right like from the from the carpet cleaner to the artistic director to design to uh finance you know what i mean like yeah. it is it is steeped into the organization and and it's funny like that you asked this question because we say colonial and people just say, oh, it's so colonial. And it's almost becoming a metaphor. Right. You know, it's almost becoming a trigger word or kind of like a, mm -hmm. a catchy thing to say. But truly, it is the only thing that embodies what these spaces are like. It, it would literally have to completely be dissolved and start over yeah. in order for yeah. me to be like to even to even think through how this might be different. I think the biggest thing, again, coming back to the first thing I said is my body. I'm a guest. Who right. is the guest? Who was allowed to be on salary and is here permanently engaged in these collections? Mm -hmm. And who are the black women that are brought in temporarily? Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like we will eventually the exhibit will go down. <laughs> we will eventually be in the archive or whatever. But we will not mm. be there. And then the institution will go back to being a predominantly white institution, just as it was right. before we started, right? So these are, the, I mean, those are the kind of challenges, mm -hmm. ongoing challenges, maybe, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like when you speak about like kind of like the minute details that went through making that space feel welcoming to a black person. And I'm speaking from my experience going in there. And like, I think, first of all, seeing so many other black people just made me feel so good. Just that, that, just that very thing. I remember um, a few years ago, I was in Boston and like there were so many art galleries I was going to, so many museums. But every time I was so uncomfortable because I would be like, you'll see like maybe one other black person. And then the art that was supposed to be kind of like celebrating or being having been done by people of African descent, there was something uneasy about it. Mm. Um, and I, I, I realized at, at some point I had actually said that I, I was no longer interested in going to museums just because they were just these like keepsakes of colonial, like 
objects and and just the like just colonial discourse. Mm-hmm. And I like I I was I was just kind of kind of done. And when I came to the opening night, I was like, my goodness, <laughs> this is this is what it could be. Like there was something, there was an energy that was completely different. Mm-hmm. The fact that the people who were there, we all felt like we were meant to be there. It mm-hmm. was just so I I I was really touched, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Um, and like I want to know if if we were to create other spaces that aren't like the like the conventional museums that we know of mm-hmm. to kind of like express ourselves artistically and showcase our art as people of African descent. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of like just speculate, it doesn't have to be realistic on what that could be like? Mm. Um, I mean, these are things that I'm like dreaming up as well. Yeah. I will say first, before I like allow myself to dream, the challenge Mm -hmm. is that the, as I'm an MFA student currently, um, I'm going through a predominantly white academic space to graduate, Mm -hmm. to come out, to be able to lead or be the next generation of curators that are still working within these very confined um, white and colonial ideas of how just the ethics of displaying works. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and so I'm constantly having to unlearn and unravel all that I know about how to even begin to organize or begin to e- even administratively, right? Like mm-hmm. begin the the concept of creating a new space. My, my fear, my constant fear, because we do have artist run spaces. Mm-hmm. But what happens when these artists run spaces are working within the same system, we're start, you know, like we're starting to, to see that we're, they're still producing sites of harm. They're still not doing what they need to do for people of color, for artists of marginalized. Like, you know, like, how are we how are we going to kind of get out of that that rat race or that wheel? Mm-hmm. And these like these I don't have the answers. These are just questions that I'm I'm asking out loud because I sincerely am trying to figure it out with my colleagues and and I know that folks are trying to shake the table um but what would this new table look like I think it would be the first thing that comes to my mind is a space where experiential knowledge embodied knowledge is viewed as rigorous is viewed as academic and is viewed as valid Mm -hmm. where we're prioritizing people's experiences um, as their practice, as part of their critical arts practice, mm-hmm. um, that we aren't, you know, that artists aren't needing to, or even art facilitators or cultural programmers or cultural workers aren't needing to have MFAs or BFAs or any of these mm-hmm. kind of things, but that we were, we are truly doing the work of Indigenous knowledge keeping and saying what do you have to give what gifts have your ancestors brought to you what gifts have your family given to you what gifts have your life experience given to you and how can you contribute to creating this like larger space um i think also having to admit that we will fail (laughs) having to admit that there's no such thing as safe spaces just safer spaces like having to be able to be honest that we are not we are not going to be able to be the Messiah of like decolonization, that there's no space that we're going to create. That's going to be completely 
free mm-hmm. from harm. Um, and that regardless of where the art is being consumed, it's still being consumed, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so we have to understand that there is a capitalistic kind of, uh, part to this, right? We're not showing it for the good of our community. We're showing it because it could make us money. It could, you know, on all of the other things are great too, but at the end of the day, artists have to make a living. Um, so it's also about how, how do you strike that balance between deciding how much of yourself to share, like how much of us are you giving and, uh, giving enough so that we can make sure that we're commodifying our works and commodifying our skills. Um, but I think Skillshare is going to be the basis of how these spaces work, right? That no, there's no hierarchy. Maybe there's no ED and there's no AD, you know, that it's really, Like, how do we center these spaces around the value of collectivity where, like, interdependence is is necessary? It's, like, the number one rule. Like, not only are we saying, yeah. come as you are, bring your experiences, your experiences are valid here, and viewed as important, valued knowledge in this space, but also that we need you and we need each other and right. that's non-negotiable. Because I, I don't actually think anything has to change with the art. We've always produced the best art. People yes. of color are producing the only art worth looking at, to be completely honest. Mm. Especially right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, straight up. <laughs> straight up. Like we are, because we're living the lives that produce the art that is worth talking mm-hmm. about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I, so the art doesn't have to change it's the collecting that has to change. It's the administrative, it's the ethics of how we engage each other that has to change, I think. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's that dream space. That's, you know, that's the foundation of that, like, space that we haven't created yet. Yeah, totally. All right. I just want to take a moment to thank the Real Estate Foundation of BC for sponsoring this episode of Design Unmuted. The Real Estate Foundation of BC is a philanthropic organization working to advance sustainable land use and real estate practices in British Columbia. They do this by funding projects, connecting people, and sharing knowledge. Their grants support not-for-profit organizations working to improve BC communities and natural environments through responsible and informed land use, conservation, and real estate practices. They're particularly interested in land use projects that contribute to the upholding of indigenous rights and title and racial equity and justice. You can learn more at www.refbc.com. Thank you for your support of Design Unmuted. Now, let's get back to it. And um, with the emergence of NFTs and, and this kind of like digital space how do you feel like that's gonna play out in this kind of like artistic realm and uplifting our voices access i mean where art meets politics like that's like when that shit hits sorry can i swear of course okay when that shit hits like we have been we have already been doing like the truth is that we have already been doing this we have already been figuring out ways to commodify ourselves um mm-hmm. both digitally because because we have to create these digital spaces of community in lieu of having actual community on the ground like we are we are already set up for success in this area what i hope mm-hmm. is that it doesn't which is you know sadly already happening but it doesn't become this elite thing, right? It doesn't become another elite space for for right. for whiteness to kind of do what it does. 
because the truth is that we already have the to the tools to be able to be the ones that are successful in leading and leading this this charge like mm -hmm. i really i really hope that a lot of artists and like even for myself like every time that i engage an artist i'm thinking about how to multiply the way that their work is being seen is it being digitized is it being turned into postcards is it being turned into an nft like all those things mm -hmm. because we need to have that access <laughs> we need to have access. Yeah. you know what i mean like not only access to each other but for other folks to have access to us in a way that creates a certain level of authority and agency with our work yeah right because we are being left out of major collections we are being we're only one percent of major galleries in north america so if that is the case and we know that then this new baby this nft this access point that we have sh mm -hmm. should be ours for the taking and i'm and i right. think that can only happen you know the more that we talk about it the more that we share information because we know what happens we get locked out of these conversations and they yeah. you know, we don't get to be a part of it simply because we're not in the room you know totally or we think it's not for us or we don't have the language or the jargon is above our heads and like we just need to do we just need to share again that knowledge sharing yeah i wonder in like in the next 10 years or so when FT nfts are like more kind of common what that would look like for like somebody like yourself who is an art curator and you're like trying to organize this kind of like digital art exhibition like that would be super exciting I mean, I just started working on curating for Google Arts. Okay. So, I and even the prospect of that, I literally was like, and so where does the art live? And so how is it like, and really, <laughs> poor, poor <laughs> Google was like, what do you mean? Like, and trying to like, get me excited about this digital landscape. And I was just like, you know, I like to be in the space. I like to feel it. I like to walk up to the mm -hmm. things. Like, I don't want that craftsmanship and masterful, you know, the mastery of that work to, to disappear. But I'm also like, you know, I'm learning so much. I'm learning so much about what the possibilities of this digital space is. So mm -hmm. in 10 years, I can only imagine, I, I, I hope that, I hope to be in the space of like 50-50 because I do think yeah. that there's something special about like being able to almost touch, feel, smell textiles and those types of things in person. But yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a tech <laughs> baby. So I'll be struggling, mm -hmm. struggling along with the rest of us. But <laughs> yeah, you, I know you just said you just started working on uh, this uh, Google art space. Yeah. What are some of the, like, already, like you, you mentioned, like, being challenged with understanding where the art lives, right? Like, you just finished this incredible kind of, like, in physical space exhibition, curating that, and now starting this. How are you seeing, like, some of the main differences already? Ooh, I mean right off the bat what it would cost for me to create to transport safely some of these works from nigeria from you know we mm. really ran through a budget um google right. is saying like you're basically just paying for ip like you're paying for you know what i mean like you're just paying for um this intellectual property to exist online it's like a one-time fee it doesn't have to do with how many people see it so already i'm thinking about what are the possibilities of literally unlimited views <laughs> of this work right. and unlimited access to the works that i can choose to display because it's as simple as 
calling someone in Uganda and saying, can you take a picture of your work or can you video your work or, you know, how do you digitize your work? Yeah. And then having it being available to someone living in Vancouver who will never, who would otherwise never have access, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, thinking about these bridges of connection that we're building throughout Afro diaspora mm -hmm. that we're saying like, actually this community is, it's large, but it's smaller and tighter. We have more, more common ground than we think and he, and let me show you how you know and making those right. points of so the, that for me is the most exciting part like works that i could yeah. never afford <laughs> you know works that i could yeah, never yeah. afford to bring sometimes <laughs> just because of their scale you know or or yeah. you know or because the artist is super senior and like you know um but but just saying hey do you have this already photographed means that i can yeah. i have now have access to a whole different kind of um cast cast of artists yeah. you know so yeah totally yeah that i mean it sounds really exciting but a part of it like you were saying it makes me a little sad the the fact that maybe you were consuming this on your own in a dark corner and like you're missing the, the like you talked about like bringing people together and like the collective so like when we're in this digital space how like can we still ensure that there is still this idea of gathering and being in community um, because like, you know, on, um, on Friday evening, uh, being part of the, the black breath spectacle by Charles Campbell, like that was such a powerful experience, right? Just being there and sharing with other people. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was a very touching, like memorable experience that like, I don't know that digital space will be able to create for us. I mean, and we learned that. I feel like we may do over the pandemic, but we we learned that. Like it, it absolutely is not a replacement. And that that event on Friday was so healing, was so moving. You actually mm -hmm. forget that you require, like, as a human, <laughs> these like physical connections. Yeah. Um, and so I found myself very teary and very emotional, and just like hearing other people's voices and feel and like feeling their energy and having you know these kind of emotional conversations in person like you actually forget what that does to your nervous system like how it feels in your heart how it feels to, you know and i walked away feeling so light so joyful so like yeah. really you know so full so full and these are things for me that you cannot you cannot get off the internet and and for me one of the most, I guess, fulfilling parts of curation is the design because because I'm in graphic design and because like mm -hmm. these are the things that interest me. Like I want to know that when I color code and you walk into green room versus red room that you feel something different. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I how do I know that the lighting is working? How do I know that you read this text and this voice and the, and you heard what I was trying to do with the design here and, and like it spoke to you. Yeah. Like, how do I know that all of those kind of like silent hands of design are working online? You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, totally. And like, you know, because you're an art curator and like you, you were mentioning at the start of this interview, how you try your best to kind of like honor the artist and the hard work that they put into their work and to make sure that all the different pieces are kind of like in sync and harmonious together. And I'm wondering, how do you bring yourself into that? Like how, um, 
like how do you also bring your own uh, identity and, and interest into into that when you're navigating upholding other people's kind of like creations um curatorial voice is so important and i think that people don't realize <laughs> don't realize how important it is um right I don't think I did until I acknowledged that I could see the same works, right? I could see the same, um, I could see the same Picasso, whatever, just for ease mm -hmm. in a million different exhibits and get something different every single time because of mm -hmm. how the curator decided to arrange the work. It completely changes mm -hmm. the way that you read it. You know, if it's in a dark room, if it's in a light room, if it's underneath something, is it above something? Is there some sort of material mm -hmm. around it? Like, you know, all of those things change the way that things are being read. And so you yeah. experience the same work, but every time a curator, a different curator touches it, you might see something different. And so curatorial right. voice is so important. Um, and that's why I, I keep leaning on it and calling it a responsibility because I think that people don't realize that they actually see, hear and see curatorial voice before they see the art. And so for me, it's like, th that's how I kind of take on that responsibility. And the way that I kind of see it is a partnership, right? Like I want to hear mm -hmm. what the artists have to say, but I also want to be able to say this, you know, this kind of foundation of theory and study and experience and um, knowledge is how I'm holding up so, so carefully all of these works. That's my voice mm -hmm. underneath there. And so I want you to hear me and my perspective on how the, on what these works are saying to me and how I'm reading them. But I also want you to see them for what they are. And so I think it's mm -hmm. a 50, 50. And um, I think curators have to choose to, to work with work that moves them because actually when I choose work from the heart and when I choose work that moves me already, it's not, usually it's actually not that far of a departure from my own voice. Right. Oh, that makes sense. That's beautiful. Huh. And Naya, how would you like people to support you um, and kind of uphold you and your work? Um, I mean, I feel like I feel like I'm really lucky that the black community in BC is so supportive. I mean, for, I'm from Toronto. So for even someone that's not from here to get the type mm -hmm. of kind of support and care, um, I'm feeling really, really lucky. Um, but I think to keep holding me accountable, mm -hmm. you know, I think that it's an exchange. Like I'm, I, I would love for folks to continue to show up to the things that I create or the spaces that I'm able to create, whether it be at the Vancouver Queer Film Festival or, you know, I'm mm -hmm. programming for VIF or when I'm programming for, mm -hmm. you know, the VAG, like, you know, wherever I am, I make sure the invitation is clear that it's for y'all and y'all show up for me. And I feel like that's the most beautiful exchange. So that's all I could ever ask. Awesome. Thank you so much, Naya. Thank you for your time and sharing uh, so much of your work with us. And um, thank you for your work and dignifying um, Black people. It uh, was an honor to be able to come to Sankofa and feeling the way that I felt. So to you and all the people who made that happen, thank you. And um, it is usually my little tradition to have my guests ask me a question if they wish at the end. 
I do have a question. You didn't mm-hmm. tell me this. Oh, I would have had so many questions prepared. <laughs> uh, but- <laughs> That's exactly why I don't tell you. <laughs> um, well, obviously you work in design. And so my question is around how you, how do you see yourself kind of, again, doing the work of centering Black and Indigenous voices in your work and how, what, what kind of things or people are inspiring the way that you think through alternative forms of design? Oh, thanks for that question. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I just graduated last year from uh, landscape architecture. And in all the four years that I was at UBC in that program, I was the only black person there. Mm. So that, that can tell you already. Um, and I think in all of Canada, I think we have less than 1% of black landscape architects. Mm. So it's, it's very um, unwelcoming to black folks and very Eurocentric. And so part of me centering our, ourselves is also unlearning a lot of things mm-hmm. and really digging deep. Like it, this is really kind of like almost spiritual work on my part Mm -hmm. that often feels like I have to look outside of this profession Mm -hmm. to find guidance Mm -hmm. myself and uh, uh, some, some colleagues have started uh, the black and indigenous design collective specifically to build capacity building for black and indigenous youth to be able to enter these spaces and start having different types of conversations and that work in itself, like it really challenges you to bring a different way of working, mm-hmm. right? We can't claim that we're creating a different space if we are going to replicate the things that we learned. Right. right? So that in itself, uh, by trying to create that space, makes me uh, seek out different ways of doing things. And um Myself with uh, Justin Benjamin Taylor and Sierra Tassi Baker are currently leading a, a design studio at UBC, and it's on. Our, it's called Revisiting Hogan's Alley. Mm. And so, by doing that, first of all, bringing into the canon like a production of work of a few months that is trying to recognize the presence of Black people. Mm-hmm. in so-called Vancouver and to have people um, work through a design ethos that is based in Afrocentrism, Indigenous futurism, Indigenous sovereignty, that in itself kind of, I feel, is revolutionary in, an, in such an institution. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess like it's just trying in the, in the ways that we can, but the biggest challenge is the unlearning. Absolutely. And yeah, and trusting that what you're doing is right. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, thank you for your work and thank you for the things that you're doing. It's always very difficult when we are the first and the only and the, you know, the truth tellers and also, you know, the guiding light. You know, I feel like all the all the labor and all the work um, that we're somehow being made to dismantle um, the harm that we didn't create is very challenging. And, you know, Mm -hmm. 
I, I thank yeah. you for your work. And I hope that all of you are thinking through how you're caring for yourselves while you do this work and while you make space for others. Cause I know it's extremely taxing. Oh yeah. It's, it's, a, it's exhausting. And at, at an emotional level, yeah, because it's sometimes you feel like you're at odds with it's like, oh, I'm doing this thing. It doesn't quite feel right. And I don't know how to correct it. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating when you don't quite know where to go find that answer. So, yeah, we're literally making this liberation up. <laughs> some of it, some of it, you know, as we yeah. go along and, you know, what the needs of our communities are, what the needs of how, you know, and all of these things while we're literally, again, you just graduated. I've just graduated. Like we're new, we're fresh, we're babies. Yeah. So, so it's hard. It's hard work, but I, I also can't help but think about, like you said, what the next 10 years might look like because of the work that you're doing right now, you know? Yeah. We're, I mean, we're really hoping to, to change this landscape. Like we, it, it's got to change. Like at this point, really there, there, there right. are no options. Right. So. Right. It's very and, yeah, it, it is. It is. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, hoping to catch you in person sometime soon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Of course. It's my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Design Unmuted podcast brought to you by Divine. If you liked what you heard, please rate and tell your friends about it. You can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted and also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com. The track you're hearing is called Under the Sun by Kafaye, singer-songwriter and produced by Ozenit or Zenith by Kiga and Saint-Jean. Enjoy.